0: Hey, Trumpcast listeners, Virginia Heffernan here. You're about to hear a short excerpt from today's episode of Trumpcast. It's riveting, but to listen to the full episode, you need to be a Slate Plus member. That's no hardship. You can join now at slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and listen to the whole episode and all episodes of Trumpcast ad-free. We've started making one in four TrumpCast episodes exclusive to Slate Plus members, and these are some of the best ones. We hope you'll join to hear the show and to support the work that we do here at Slate. You'll get no ads on any of our podcasts and extra content from Slate shows like Slow Burn and the Slate Political Gab Fest. So sign up now at slate.com slash TrumpCast Plus to get every single TrumpCast episode in full. It's only thirty-five dollars for the first year. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. I'm the one without the accent, unlike my esteemed colleagues, Senor Leon Krause and Herr Yasha Monk. They've been great additions to the show, and I hope you'll tune into all our Trumpcasts and not miss the varying perspectives und dialecten. Quiero hablar Español, pero I can ein bisschen Deutsch sprechen. Aber my native tongue is podcast old white lady vocal fry. But I digress. Sometimes you just don't want to talk about Trump. And I spent last night, I don't know about you, but I was watching a family feud marathon on the Game Show Network as usual. Good job, Finnegan family from Lubbock, Texas. So I have no idea what Trump was up to. I did notice that Paul Manafort has some nasty anxiety and gout that he says made him lie to Robert Mueller's team. Ouchie! You know, I bet Yulia Tymoshenko felt a touch of anxiety when you, Paul Manafort, working with Yanukovych in Ukraine, quote, "...put a stink on her and kept her a political prisoner, which broke her body but not her will." And all the blood on your hands, Paul Manafort, from heading the tortures lobby for decades and repping murderous charmers like Ferdinand Marcos and, of course, one Donald Trump. Man, are you a bad person. Sorry about the gout, though. In other news, an unredacted portion of Manafort's documents revealed that he shared campaign information with his buddy Konstantin Kalimnik, who's evidently a Russian spy. That alone could give you collusion gout, gout gout-lusion. Also in court documents, we learned that madcap Russian lawyer Natalia Veselnitskaya, she of obstruction of justice in the Prevazon case, the smear campaign against the tortured and dead reformer Sergei Magnitsky, and the other smear campaign against Magnitsky's chief advocate, Bill Browder. She's been indicted for obstruction of justice. Oh, I forgot to mention that Veselnetskaya is better known for attending and seemingly arranging that dang Trump Tower meeting with Kushner Jr. and yes, Paul Manafort, in which she seemed to have asked for help smashing the Magnitsky Act and Browder in trade for whatever loose chain she had in her pocket, some stock gibberish about Hillary Clinton or maybe the restoration of Russian adoptions. I can't stop thinking about Natalia's wild week in New York City, set in that gorgeous and sinister Manhattan in June, in which she obstructed justice for Pravazan, dined with Glenn Simpson, and tried to crush that Magnitsky Act in a Caludathon with Manafort, Kushner, and Jr. Whew, Calgon, take me away. My guest today is among the few commenters on the Trump crisis who can speak to all of these things. Russia, the tactics used by the likes of Paul Manafort and the American Family Feud crowd who might or might not continue to support the president on this dangerous and brutal shutdown border play. She is Sarah Kenzior, the author of The View from Flyover Country and the host of the podcast Gaslit Nation. Sarah, welcome to Trumpcast. I'm so glad you're on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. So you're the author of The Brilliant, The View from Flyover Country, which I wish I had read before the election, but I consumed after the election once you came to my attention as a key figure in what I increasingly think of as the war effort. (laughs) Well, thank you. And now you're also the co-host of this great podcast, Gaslit Nation. Before we get to the news, which there's a lot of, I want you to talk a little bit about gaslighting because it's a term that's been known, I think, mostly to women for a long time. But now that we all have an abusive father, husband in the figure of Donald Trump, it seems to well apply to a nation. What do you think the term and the idea of gaslighting buys us in our time?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right that the concept of gaslighting is linked to abuse. And of course, when you have an abusive government, you're going to see those sort of tactics played out on a massive scale. The main tactic that the Trump administration has used and that Trump himself has used for decades is to deny objective reality, is to tell people that what they're seeing play out in front of them, you know, whether it's corruption or simply, you know, something objectively provable like the size of a crowd, isn't happening and make them doubt their own reality, make them lack Mm -hmm. confidence in their own observations and sort of feel threatened, feel powerless, because the purpose of that kind of brazen lie is to make people feel helpless and make them feel like there's nothing they could do to challenge power, that the audacity of that lie is itself a form of power. And a really obvious example of this is what happened after the inauguration, when Trump bragged about the size of the crowd. And we could all see with our eyes that this was a much smaller crowd than for Obama, for example. But they they didn't care. They didn't care that we knew because they knew there was nothing that we could do about their lie.
0: Right. I think in the movie Gaslighting, Ingrid Bergman marries a guy, and it is kind of <laughs> worth looking at the origins of the statement, marries a guy who's after her for her money trying to pick her pocket. So like if we think of her as the nation, we have a looting president who who's trying to lower taxes on the rich, but enrich himself, a kleptocracy. And he flickers the lights and constantly makes Ingrid Bergman feel like she is insane. She's the one with, let's just call it Trump derangement syndrome, and (laughs) thereby impairs her and weakens her so that he can manipulate her and steal her money. That suggests that Trump Not only knows he's lying about things like the crowd size or where the crisis is, he says it's at the border. Most of us know it's in the White House, but that he is doing it with the intent to cognitively destabilize us.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and they've been steadily doing that for two years, and it works very effectively. This is also something that they did during the campaign, but this is now combined with actual executive power. They can make decisions based on these lies. They can prop up policies based on these lies. And despite the fact that we can see through them, we have less leverage. And what's been frustrating to me watching this is the refusal of the media, and I don't mean all of the media because some people, you know, are still doing a good job. But a lot of the media, to see through these tactics of a president who has been trained in reality TV, in domination of the tabloids, and in corruption and crime, Um, you know, you saw reports from outlets like the Associated Press, which had this kind of both sides are doing it analysis of Trump's speech. You know, this is a government that needs these audacious lies to thrive. And the fact that there's an inability to even recognize that this is happening, much less break down the nature of the lie itself the motivation behind it is disconcerting two years Mm -hmm. into power
0: You've been tirelessly on this idea that the sort of traditional media has been too overwhelmed. I think that's the sympathetic view. And No one expected that the White House would ever be occupied by an asset of a foreign country using the same, as you said when we talked earlier, the same rhetoric, the same tropes, the same strategies to destabilize a country and make the problem feel like it's ours and not theirs, not his, not Trump's. You just have been on the front lines reasserting the truth over and over again. You've A reputation for this Cassandra-like fury on Twitter where you never let a lie pass unchecked. For any Trumpcast listeners who don't follow Sarah on Twitter, you're missing out. You started by writing for The Globe and Mail. How did you come by your perspective? How did you sort of maintain the idea in the face of plenty of heat that you take on Twitter that there was something you needed to do about this and another story that needed to be told?
1: Yeah, before writing for the Globe and Mail, you know, which I began doing in 2016, I got a PhD in anthropology, and my focus Mm. of study was authoritarian regimes in the former Soviet Union. And of course, Trump, when he began running, you know, I recognized a similar figure. I knew that if he would win, he would rule as a kleptocrat. I did not know at the time just how closely related he was, you know, in a non-metaphorical way, in a very literal and tangible way, to Autocrats from the former Soviet Union. Although, you know, once he hired Paul Manafort, that became clear. Once he asked for Hillary Clinton's emails from Russia at a press conference, that became Mm -hmm. enormously clear. But, you know, a lot of my concern about Trump was based on, you know, a career as a scholar of researching. Dictatorships, And then you combine that with the history of legally sanctioned autocratic practices in the United States, slavery, the genocide of Native Americans, Jim Crow laws, internment camps. There's this myth that it can't happen here, which ignores the fact that it's already happened here. And all you need to do is to, you know, heighten tendencies that already existed in American society, you know, breakdowns and loopholes in American law and bring them into actual policy. The Republican party which had been growing more and more extreme has been trying to do that for a long time and the other thing is I've moved in and out of media and academia. I started out at the New York Daily News right after I graduated from college. So Mm -hmm. some of the earliest things I did were copy edit articles about Trump, you know, read articles about Trump, Mm -hmm. become familiar with New York tabloid politics. I then Mm -hmm. moved into studying authoritarianism. I then began, you know, studying and writing about the breakdown of the United States from my basis in St. Louis and of the Midwest, which was hit especially hard and which became a Target for Trump, you know, this was the place with the pain that he preyed on, and so I saw his win as feasible, you know, for the primary, mm-hmm. for the general, and I knew that he would rule uh, like an autocrat, and that checks and balances would not necessarily save us. So I felt like a moral obligation to warn people and to try to situate this in historical context. You know, this is not about my personal dislike for Trump. This is about my deep concern for the stability of this country, for the protection of citizens, you know, for the people who have already been killed or harmed or who are suffering, you know, for the workers right now or not getting paid. This is going to keep getting worse unless people step up and do something. But you can't do something if you're not even going to acknowledge that the problem exists. So if I can help in that capacity, then that's what I'm going to do.
0: So that's the teaser for today's show. Aren't you tantalized? Don't you want to hear the whole thing? Well, now's your chance. You can sign up now at Slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus to get every single Trumpcast episode, all of it, no ads. It's only $35 for the first year. Go to Slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus.